0: Early in the Old Testament we have the promise that all the earth shall be filled with the glory of jehovah numbers fourteen twenty one and Isaiah repeats the promise that all flesh shall see the glory of jehovah chapter forty verse five Isaiah was set for a light to the Gentiles and for salvation unto the end of the earth isaiah forty nine verse six and acts thirteen forty seven Joel made the clear declaration that in the coming days of blessing the Spirit hitherto given only to Israel would be poured out upon the whole earth. And it shall come to pass afterward, said the Lord through his prophet, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Chapter 2, verse 28 And Peter applied that prophecy to the outpouring that was begun at Pentecost. But this is that which hath been spoken through the prophet Joel. Acts 2, verse 16 Nothing could well exceed the plainness, directness, and precision with which the conversion of the nations is announced in the Psalms. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and they shall glorify thy name. Psalm 86, verse 9 All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn unto Jehovah, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. Psalm 22, verse 27 Ask of me and I will give thee the nations for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Psalm 2 verse 8 The 47th Psalm sings of the sovereignty of God and of his rulership over the nations. For Jehovah Most High is terrible, he is a great king over all the earth. He subdueth peoples under us and nations under our feet. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing ye praises with understanding, God reigneth over the nations. God sitteth upon his holy throne. Verses 2 through 8 Probably nowhere is the universal reign of Christ stated more strongly than in the Messianic 72nd Psalm. In his days shall the righteous flourish and abundance of peace till the moon be no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the Isles shall render tribute. The kings of Sheba and Theba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. All nations shall call him happy. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Verses 7-11 and verses 17 and 19 All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and they shall glorify thy name. Psalm 86, verse 9 Jehovah saith unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Psalm 110, verse 1 We call special attention to the fact that this latter verse from the 110th Psalm means that Christ is to conquer all. The right hand position is the position of power and influence. This conquest is now in process of accomplishment as he advances against his enemies. His mediatorial reign from the right hand of God is to continue until all of his enemies have been subdued. In the New Testament, Christ himself quoted this verse to prove his deity, Luke 20, verses 42 and 43. Peter, too, quoted this verse, Acts 2, verses 34 and 35, to prove that what had happened at Pentecost was the fulfillment of psalm 110 verse 1 he thus saw its fulfillment not as a cataclysmic act coming at the day of judgment but in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church during the present age this process is to continue until all of Christ's enemies have been placed under his feet so that he reigns over all the earth there is no mistaking the meaning of these announcements found in the psalms They are as unambiguous as anything that can be spoken by the most sanguine advocates of foreign missions in this 20th century. Yet they come from the time of David, and most of them are from his pen. By him the Holy Spirit, for 29 centuries, has been bearing witness that God's visible church is destined to embrace all the nations that he has created on the whole face of the earth. A time is coming when they shall acknowledge the Lord as their ruler. They have long forgotten him, but one day they shall acknowledge his claims and turn to him, even in the uttermost parts of the earth. Says Mr. Kick, the covenant concept of all nations blessed comes to the fore in the poetry of the Psalter. The composers of the book of praise of the Old Testament looked for the triumph of the church upon earth. There are no better missionary hymns than those contained in the Psalms. One of the contributing factors to present-day pessimism, gloominess, deceitism within the church is the omitting of the psalms from the hymn books. A quote from Historic Reformed Eschatology, page 17. In Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, we read, And it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of Jehovah's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow into it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go to the mountain of Jehovah, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of Jehovah from Jerusalem. In the book of Hebrews, Mount Zion, God's holy mountain, is spiritualized to mean the church. Chapter 12, verse 22. Hence, in this prophecy it must mean that the church having attained a position so that it stands out like a mountain on the plain will be prominent and regulative in all world affairs. Ezekiel gives us the picture of the increasing flow of the healing waters which issue from under the threshold of the temple, waters which first were only to the ankles, then to the knees, then to the loins, then a great river, waters which could not be passed through. Chapter 47, verses 1-5 Daniel's interpretation of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream taught the same truth. The king saw a large image with various parts of gold, silver, brass, iron, and clay. Then he saw a stone cut without hands, which stone smote the image so that the gold, silver, brass, iron, and clay were carried away like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. These various elements represented great world empires, which were to be broken in pieces and completely destroyed, while the stone cut without hands represented a spiritual kingdom, which God himself would set up, and which figuratively would become a great mountain and fill the whole earth. And in the days of those kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, nor shall the sovereignty thereof be left to another people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. Daniel 2.44 The generally accepted interpretation of the dream is that the four parts of the image represented four successive empires. The Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Macedonian Empire of Alexander the Great and the Roman Empire. In the light of the New Testament we see that the final kingdom represented by the stone cut out without hands was the one that Christ set up, which indeed was set up while the Roman Empire still was in existence. The Church, an institution not of human, but of divine origin, and therefore described as cut out without hands, was destined to outlast and break in pieces all of the Antichristian kingdoms, that is, convert and transform them, and so figuratively to become a great mountain and fill the whole earth, so prominent will it be in every phase of human life. In the vision which Daniel saw, recorded in chapter 7, the beast made war against the saints and prevailed against them for a time. But the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Verse 22. Jeremiah gives the promise that the time is coming when it will no longer be necessary for a man to say to his brother or to his neighbor, "Know Jehovah, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them chapter 31 verse 34 the last book of the Old Testament contains a promise that from the rising of the sun even unto the going down of the same my name shall be great among the Gentiles saith Jehovah of hosts Malachi 1 verse 11 in the New Testament we find the same clear teaching at the Jerusalem conference James cited the prophecy of Amos 9 verses 11 and 12 that in the days to come God would pour out spiritual blessings on his people, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that are called by my name. Edom here being taken as typical of Jehovah's enemies, and James, speaking by inspiration and quoting this prophecy, gives it a wider interpretation, saying that the residue of men and all the Gentiles are to seek after the Lord. Acts 15.17 This clearly implies the worldwide conversion of the nations. The New Testament puts a strong emphasis on the fact that it is the world that is the object of Christ's redemption. Christ is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. 1 John 2.2 For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God sent not the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. John 3 verses 16 and 17. The Father hath sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. 1 John 4:14. 4, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. John 1:29. We have heard of ourselves and know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. John 4:42 I am the light of the world John 8:12 God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself 2 Corinthians 5:19 The parable of the leaven teaches the universal extension and triumph of the gospel and it further teaches that this development is accomplished through the gradual development of the kingdom not through a sudden and cataclysmic explosion there we are told that the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till it was all leavened. Matthew thirteen thirty-three. The kingdom of heaven, like leaven, transforms that with which it comes in contact. All the meal was transformed by its contact with the leaven. Similarly, Christ teaches, society is to be transformed by the kingdom of heaven, and the result will be a Christianized world. Premillennialists cannot admit this. To do so would contradict their whole system. Hence, they seek another meaning, and where Christ says the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, they say that the leaven is not symbolical of the kingdom of heaven, but of evil. J.S. Silver, one of their representative writers, says, Literally, it denotes sin. Therefore, here, it means apostasy. A quote from The Lord's Return, page 247. And another representative writer, W.E. Blackstone, says, We believe that the leaven in the parable of Matthew 13 represents the false doctrines which have crept in and so pervaded the professing church that it has, in the main, become merely formal and nominal. Jesus is coming, page 95. We are at a loss to understand how anyone professing to take the Bible at face value particularly those who lay great stress on literal interpretation, can deliberately contradict the words spoken so clearly and unequivocally and make them mean the opposite, in this case, false doctrine. These are the very people who protest so strongly against spiritualizing. Anyone who can so change the meaning of scripture can make it mean anything that he pleases. According to this interpretation, Christ is to be understood as saying, in effect, that the kingdom of heaven is like an evil influence which brings the whole world into a state of apostasy. This is an example of the extremity to which some will go, the forced interpretation to which they will resort in defending a theory. They would never arrive at such a meaning if they were not attempting to avoid the clear implication of the parable. Premillennialists seize upon the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. King James Version As proving their doctrine that the gospel is to be preached only as a witness, or as a testimony. American Standard Version And therefore that it is not intended to convert the world. This verse in itself may not be decisive as to the purpose and effect of its preaching. But such definitely was not the case when Christ gave the Great Commission to the disciples. There he said, All authority hath been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Matthew 28, verses 18-20 through Here we are told that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ for the performance of this work. Commenting on this point, Dr. Snowden says, All authority includes all power of every kind that is applicable to this task. Jesus Christ can never have any more power than he has now, for he now has here all there is. Premillinarians put their confidence in some rod of iron with which Christ will smite down all opposition when he comes. But Christ now has omnipotence and has pledged it to the present work of preaching the gospel for the conversion of the world. He goes on to say that the Greek word translated make disciples of is a strong one, meaning not merely to preach or evangelize, but to convert into disciples. We have in this commission express an inescapable teaching that the gospel is preached not simply for evangelizing or for a witness, but for the deeper work of conversion. These nations are to be converted into Christian disciples, and this work is not done, but only begun when they are evangelized or simply had the gospel preached to them. Jesus here speaks in world terms. Here is the splendid universality of his gospel premillenarians say that Christ the King is absent and tell us what great things he will do when he comes again. But Christ himself assures us that he is present and is even now with us in our work. To reduce this great commission to the premillenarian program of preaching the gospel as a witness to the world that is to go worse and worse until it plunges into its doom and destruction is to emasculate the gospel of Christ and wither it into pitiful impotency. This is to send the gospel out into the world as a futile thing, foreordained to failure from the start. No, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and Jesus Christ, marching in the greatness of his strength, sends us on no empty errand of uttering a message that will die away in the air on an unheeding and hostile world, gathering only a few out of its innumerable multitudes and consigning the vast majority to destruction. But he sends us to make disciples of all the nations, and thereby win the world itself. A quote from the coming of the Lord, pages 98-103. through We find that Christ's work of redemption truly has as its object the people of the entire world, and that his kingdom is to become universal. And since nothing is told us as to how long the earth shall continue after that goal has been reached, Possibly we can look forward to a great golden age of spiritual prosperity continuing for centuries or even for millenniums during which time Christianity shall be triumphant over all the earth and during which time the great proportion even of adults shall be saved. It seems that the number of the redeemed shall then be swelled until it far surpasses that of the lost. Chapter 6, page 30 The Vastness of the Redeemed Multitude The writer of the Apocalypse says, I saw, and behold, a great multitude, which no man could number, out of every nation and of all the tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, arrayed in white robes and palms in their hands. And they cried with a great voice, saying, Salvation unto our God, who sitteth on the throne and unto the Lamb. Revelation 7 verses 9 and 10 God has chosen to redeem untold millions of the human race just what proportion of the race has been included in his purposes of mercy we have not been informed but in view of the future days of prosperity which are promised to the church it may be inferred that much the greater part eventually will be found among that number assuming that those who die in infancy are saved as most churches have taught and as most theologians have believed, already much the larger portion of the human race has been saved. In Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21, we have a vision setting forth in figurative language the age-long struggle between the forces of good and the forces of evil in the world with its promise of complete victory. There we read, And I saw the heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, And he that sat thereon called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. And he hath a name written which no one knoweth but himself. And he is arrayed in a garment sprinkled with blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and pure. And out of his mouth proceedeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God the Almighty. And he hath on his garment and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in mid-heaven, Come and be gathered together unto the great supper of God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit thereon, and the flesh of men, both free and bond, and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought the signs in his sight wherewith he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. They too were cast alive into the lake of fire that burneth with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword of him that sat upon the horse even the sword which came forth out of his mouth and all the birds were filled with their flesh. The best explanation of this passage, we believe, is that given by Dr. Warfield. He says, the section opens with a vision of the victory of the word of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords over all his enemies. We see him come forth from heaven, girt for war, followed by the armies of heaven. The birds of the air are summoned to the feast of corpses that shall be prepared for them. The armies of the enemy, the beasts, and the kings of the earth are gathered against him and are totally destroyed, and all the birds are filled with their flesh. It is a vivid picture of a complete victory, an entire conquest that we have here, and all the imagery of war and battle is employed to give it life. This is a symbol. The thing symbolized is obviously the complete victory of the Son of God over all the hosts of wickedness. Only a single hint of this signification is afforded by the language of the description, but that is enough. On two occasions we are carefully told that the sword by which the victory is won proceeds out of the mouth of the conqueror. Verses 15 and 21. We are not to think, as we read, of any literal war or manual fighting. Therefore, the conquest is wrought by the spoken word. In short, by the preaching of the gospel. In fine, we have before us here a picture of the victorious career of the gospel of Christ in the world. All the imagery of the dreadful battle and its hideous details are but to give us the impression of the completeness of the victory. Christ's gospel is to conquer the earth. He is to overcome all his enemies. What we have here, in effect, is a picture of the whole period between the first and second Advents, seen from the point of view of heaven. It is the period of advancing victory of the Son of God over the world emphasizing in harmony with its place at the end of the book the completeness of the victory. It is the 11th chapter of Romans and the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians in symbolical form and there is nothing in it that was not already in them except that perhaps the completeness of the triumph of the gospel is possibly somewhat more emphasized here. As emphatically as Paul, John teaches that the earthly history of the church is not a history merely of conflict with evil, but of conquest over evil. And even more richly than Paul, John teaches that this conquest will be decisive and complete. The whole meaning of the vision of Revelation 19 verses 11 through 21 is that Christ Jesus comes forth not to war merely, but to victory. And every detail of the picture is laid in with a view precisely to emphasizing the thoroughness of the victory the gospel of Christ is John being witness completely to conquer the world he says nothing any more than Paul does of the period of the endurance of this conquered world whether the last judgment and the consummated kingdom are to follow immediately upon its conquest his visions are as silent as Paul's teachings But just on that account, the possibility of an extended duration for the conquered earth lies open. And in any event, a progressively advancing conquest of the earth by Christ's gospel implies a coming age deserving at least the relative name of Golden. A quote from the article, The Millennium and the Apocalypse, reprinted in Biblical Doctrines, pages 647, 648, and 662. To us who live between the first and the second coming of Christ, it is given to see that conquest taking place. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21, we believe, is a description of the spiritual warfare which rages through the centuries, in which, as followers of our great captain, it is our privilege to have a part. In verse 14, we are told that those who follow the rider on the white horse are clothed in fine linen, white and pure. Surely Christ's elect are his soldiers. Earlier in the same chapter, verse 8, we are told that the church, as the bride of the Lamb, has arrayed herself in fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Hence the righteous acts of the saints, who through the centuries constitute the church, evidently play an important part in this great conquest. Paul gives an insight into the nature of this battle when he says, Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6, verses 11 and 12 Here we learn who the real enemies of Christ's kingdom are our conflict is revealed as not primarily against evil human beings but rather against spiritual hosts of wickedness here too we learn that in this holy war Christians are Christ's soldiers and that it is through their victory that his victory is won how long the conquest continues before it is crowned with victory we purposely use the word conquest rather than conflict for Christ is not merely striving against evil but progressively overcoming it or how long the converted world is to wait her coming Lord, we are not told. Today we are living in an era that is relatively golden as compared with the first century of the Christian era. This progress is to go on until on this earth we shall see a practical fulfillment of the prayer, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven and the mere fact that Christ himself taught his disciples thus to pray certainly indicates that it is a petition that God desires and wills to answer. As we get the broader view of God's gracious dealings with the sinful world we see that he has not distributed his saving grace with a miserly hand but that his purpose has been the restoration to himself of the whole world. We have quoted Warfield's view regarding a future golden age another of America's most brilliant theologians, Jonathan Edwards, gives the following exposition of the postmillennial position. The visible kingdom of Satan shall be overthrown, and the kingdom of Christ set up on the ruins of it, everywhere throughout the whole inhabitable globe. Now shall the promise made to Abraham be fulfilled, that in him and in his seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed and Christ now shall become the desire of the nations. Agreeable to Haggai 2 verse 7 Now the kingdom of Christ shall in the most strict and literal sense be extended to all nations in the whole earth. There are many passages of scripture that can be understood in no other sense. What can be more universal than that in Isaiah 11 verse 9 For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea as much as to say, as there is no part of the channel or cavity of the sea anywhere but what is covered with water, so there shall be no part of the world of mankind but what shall be covered with the knowledge of God. It is foretold in Isaiah 45, verse 22, that all the ends of the earth shall look to Christ and be saved. And to show that the words are to be understood in the most universal sense, it is said in the next verse, I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that unto me every knee shall bow every tongue shall swear so the most universal expression is used in Daniel 7.27 and the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high God you see the expression includes all under the whole heaven Early in the Old Testament the promise was given to Abraham that his posterity should be a vast multitude. In blessing I will bless thee and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is upon the seashore. Genesis 22 verse 17 I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth so that if a man can number the dust of the earth then may thy seed also be numbered. Genesis 13:16 and in the New Testament we discover that this promise refers not merely to the Jews as a separate people but that those who are Christians are in the highest sense the true sons of Abraham Know therefore, says Paul, that they that are of faith the same are sons of Abraham And again, if ye are Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed heirs according to the promise Galatians 3, verses 7 and 29 Isaiah declared that the pleasure of Jehovah should prosper in the hand of the Messiah, that he should see of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Chapter 53, verses 10 and 11. And in view of what he suffered on Calvary, we know that he will not be easily satisfied. The idea that the saved shall far outnumber the lost is also carried out in the contrast drawn in Scripture. Heaven is uniformly pictured as the next world, as a great kingdom a country a city while on the other hand hell is uniformly represented as a comparatively small place a prison a lake a fire and brimstone a pit perhaps deep but narrow Luke chapter 20 verse 35 Revelation 21 verse 1 Matthew 5 verse 3 Hebrews 11 verse 16 first Peter 3 19 Revelation 19 verse 20 and chapter 21 verses 8 through 16 When the angels and saints are mentioned in Scripture they are said to be hosts, myriads, and innumerable multitude ten thousand times ten thousand and many more thousands of thousands but no such language is ever used in regard to the lost and by contrast their number appears to be relatively insignificant Luke 2 13 Isaiah 6, verse 3 and Revelation five eleven. The description of the great white throne judgment as found in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15 closes with the statement And if any was not found written in the book of life he was cast into the lake of fire Language which indicates that in the judgment the normal thing will be that the names of the great majority of earth's population are written in the book of life such language implies that those whose names are not written there are the exceptional, we may even say rare, cases. The circle of God's election, says Dr. W. W. G. G. T. Shedd, is a great circle of the heavens and not that of a treadmill. The kingdom of Satan is insignificant in contrast with the kingdom of Christ. In the immense range of God's dominion, good is the rule and evil is the exception. Sin is a speck upon the azure of eternity, a spot upon the sun. Hell is only a corner of the universe. Judging from these considerations, it appears, if we may hazard a guess, that the number of those who are saved may eventually bear some such proportion to those who are lost as the number of free citizens in our commonwealth today bears to those who are in the prisons and penitentiaries or that the company of the saved may be likened to the main stalk of the tree which grows and flourishes while the lost are but as the small limbs and prunings which are cut off and which are destroyed in the fires this is the prospect that postmillennialism is able to offer who even among those holding other systems would not wish that it were true but it may be asked do not the verses narrow as the gate and straighten the way that leadeth to life and few are they that find it and many are called but few are chosen Matthew 7.14 and 22.14 teach that many more are lost than saved we believe that these verses are meant to be understood in a temporal sense as describing the conditions which Jesus and the disciples saw existing in Palestine in their day the great majority of the people about them were not walking in the way of righteousness and the words were spoken from the standpoint of the moment rather than from the standpoint of the distant judgment day in these words we have presented to us a picture that was true to life as they thought about them and which in general has been true even up to the present time but we may ask in the view of the future prosperity promised to the church are we not entitled to believe that as the years and the centuries and ages flow on the proportion following the two ways shall be reversed these verses are also designed to teach that the way of salvation is a way of difficulty and sacrifice and that it is our duty to address ourselves to it with diligence and persistence no one is to take his salvation for granted those who enter into the kingdom of heaven do so through many tribulations hence the command strive to enter in by the narrow gate Luke thirteen twenty four, The choice in life is represented as a choice between two roads One is broad, smooth, and easy to travel but leads to destruction The other is narrow and difficult but leads to life There is no more reason, says Dr. Warfield to assume that this similitude teaches that the saved shall be fewer than the lost than there is to suppose that the parable of the ten virgins Matthew 25, verse 1 teaches that they shall be precisely equal in number and there is far less reason to suppose that this similitude teaches that the saved shall be few comparatively to the lost than there is to suppose that the parable of the tares in the wheat Matthew 13.24 teaches that the lost shall be inconsiderable in number in comparison with the saved for that indeed is an important part of the teaching of that parable a quote taken from the article are they few that be saved and we may add that there is no more reason to suppose that this reference to the two ways teaches that the number of the saved shall be fewer than the number of the lost than there is to suppose that the parable of the lost sheep teaches that only one out of a hundred goes astray and that even that one eventually will be brought back which indeed would be absolute restorationism Chapter 7, page 38, The World Is Growing Better The redemption of the world is a long, slow process, extending through the centuries, yet surely approaching an appointed goal. We live in the day of advancing victory, although there are many apparent setbacks. As seen from the human viewpoint, it often looks as though the forces of evil are about to gain the upper hand. Periods of spiritual advance and prosperity alternate with periods of spiritual decline and depression. But as one age succeeds another, there is progress. Looking back across the nearly 2,000 years that have passed since the coming of Christ, we can see that there has indeed been marvelous progress. This process ultimately shall be completed, and before Christ comes again, we shall see a Christianized world. This does not mean that all sin ever will be eradicated. There always will be some tares among the wheat until the time of harvest. And the harvest, the Lord tells us, is the end of the world. Even the righteous fall, sometimes grievously, into temptation and sin. But it does mean that Christian principles of life and conduct are to become the accepted standards in public and private life that a great spiritual advance has been made should be clear to all consider for instance the awful moral and spiritual conditions that existed on earth before the coming of Christ the world at large groping helplessly in pagan darkness with slavery polygamy the oppressed conditions of women and children the almost complete lack of political freedom and the ignorance poverty and extremely primitive medical care that was the lot of nearly all except those who belonged to the ruling classes Today the world at large is on a far higher plane. Christian principles are the accepted standards in many nations even though they are not consistently practiced. Slavery and polygamy have practically disappeared. The status of women and children have been improved immeasurably. Social and economic conditions in almost all nations have reached a new high plateau. A spirit of cooperation is much more manifest among the nations than it ever has been before international incidents which only a few years ago would have resulted in wars are now usually settled by arbitration as an evidence of international goodwill witness the fact that the United States this fiscal year July 1957 to July 1958 appropriated more than three billion dollars for the foreign aid and mutual security program and since the end of World War II has given to other nations more than sixty billion dollars for these purposes. Since our population is approximately 170 million this means an average contribution of 350 dollars for every man woman and child in the United States and this does not include the other very considerable sums that have been given by individuals churches and other organizations. This huge amount of goods and services has been given freely by this enlightened and predominantly Protestant nations to nations of other races and religions with no expectation that it will ever be paid back an effective expression of unselfishness and international goodwill that record has never been even remotely approached before by this or any other nation in all the history of the world recently the London Times the leading newspaper in England After commending the wisdom and generosity with which the United States acted, said, There are other things so obvious to us that we take them for granted. But because silence can be misunderstood, it is worth saying once again that no nation has ever come into possession of such power for good or ill, for freedom or tyranny, for friendship or enmity among the peoples of the world, and that no nation in history has used these powers, by and large, with greater vision restraint, responsibility, and courage the issue of March 23, 1954 today there is much more wealth consecrated to the service of the church than ever before and in spite of the defection toward modernism in some places we believe that there is far more really earnest evangelistic and missionary activity than at any time in the past this is indicated by a number of developments we cite particularly the following up until the time of the reformation the Bible had been a book for priests only it was written in Latin and the Roman church refused to allow it to be translated into the languages of the common people but when the reformers came on the scene all that was changed the Bible was soon translated into all of the vernacular tongues of Europe and wherever the light of the reformation went it became the book of the common people Decrees of popes and church councils gave way to the word of life. Luther translated the entire Bible into German for the people of his native land, and within 25 years of its appearance, 100 editions of the German Bible came off the press. The same was true in France, Holland, England, and Scotland. Protestant Bible societies now circulate more Bibles each year than were circulated in 15 centuries that preceded the Reformation. Publishers report that more than 8 million copies of the complete Bible were sold in the United States in 1956. Sales were up about 10% from 1955, which was the previous record year. Incidentally, it is interesting to notice that of the above number, the King James Version easily held its place as the popular favorite, its total sales being more than 6 million copies. The Revised Standard Version sold nearly one million copies. The Douay Version, the Standard Bible for American Roman Catholics, about 750,000. Jewish Bibles, about 70,000. Modern Speech Translations, such as Moffat, Goodspeed, etc., about 25,000. In addition to the above total, many millions of copies of the New Testament and portions of the Bible were sold.